What's up, everybody? It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here to bring you another episode. I'm really excited for this one because I get to talk to somebody I've wanted to talk to for quite some time. Today's guest is Angelica Wan of the Taipei Times, I believe, correct? Correct, correct. Although I am speaking here very much as an individual and uh, nothing to do with my organization. That is correct. Just In fact, <laughs> we will not even be talking. Yeah, we won't even be talking about an article from the Taipei Times. I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, it's another beautiful uh, day in Taiwan. It's uh, finally not not super hot anymore. We've had a bear of a summer. Mm. Uh, that it, uh, basically it started getting hot in May, and we had two blackouts because uh, everybody cranked that AC. Without air conditioning, Taiwan is basically uninhabitable. Yeah, wow. but finally, the it's it, it's 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 gonna be nice uh, for maybe another two weeks, and then it might get uh, damp and rainy. We'll see how it goes this winter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about the energy crunch in China, which is going to be sort of like our main topic today. But before that, I wanted to introduce you a little bit to the readers. Um, how did you come to cover? energy issues? Well, um, actually, the short answer is I was a COVID refugee. Mm. Actually, uh, before COVID, uh, Valentine's Day 2020, I was uh, actually the pastry chef at Michelin Rated Hinoki and the Bird in LA. And uh, that was going to be my path. And I, you know, I felt like I had clawed my way up to the middle. And um, when my brother told me to come back to Taiwan for COVID, I literally thought, okay, I'll be back in uh, a couple of months because this seems kind of gnarly. I'm going to send this one out. And you know, plan A was I literally got a 60-day supply of ramen and six bottles of good whiskey. <laughs> and then I went, when, when it seemed like it was going to be too serious for plan A, plan B was Taiwan. But I fully intended to return. It, it became increasingly unlikely and finally around july i bit the bullet and accepted that covid was going to be a huge thing and went back to my old job at my old employer and uh started covering journalism again and as a reporting reporter in an english language newspaper your beats are huge so I actually cover everything from downstream tech from Hongkai, oh, called Foxconn in the U.S., mm-hmm. and all the way up to uh, state-run companies and Ministry of Economic Affairs and uh, energy. I cover Thai power and I cover renewable energy. And uh, for some reason, maybe because I just can't get excited about how the iPhone 13 is different from the iPhone 12. (laughs) That doesn't do it for you. They they, they look like the same phone. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But drawn to energy in this this way where I just really understand that it's important. People's lives for Taiwan. And it also had a lot of um, interesting technological things to understand and sort of integrate into it hit all the levels for me because it's, it's politics, mm-hmm. it's technology, it's engineering, it's money. It's really just the it's life power. of the economy. Power is power, to quote mm-hmm. my favorite <laughs> Game of Thrones character. Yeah. Power is power. 
Um, and so I was, I was drawn to that. And there were a lot of stories to cover from the burgeoning renewables industry that was basically spoken into being by the president, President Tsai, when she came into office in 2016. She announced very ambitious renewable energy goals and for nuclear to go to zero by 2025. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is a fast track into energy stuff. I know it was like, you know, really, I don't, I don't, I don't make five-year plans anymore. I make one-year plans. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. If things, if things keep going this way, I might start just making six-month plans. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a wild ride. And I, I can't think of a, a topic I'd rather cover from whatever angle because, you know, you just don't think about it. Do you, as a consumer of electricity, mm-hmm. I've been an electricity enjoyer ever since I was a baby. Yeah. Uh, never thought of it as anything more than you turn on a switch and match coup, the light comes on, right? And I have no idea of this delicate dance of supply and demand that has to go on in the background to make sure that magic reliability happens all the time. And I'm a big fan of keeping it that way. I'm, I'm a big fan of keeping the average electricity consumer completely oblivious how much work yeah. goes on to making sure that happens. No, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I didn't expect to end up in the energy world either. You know, when I was probably in my early 20s, I thought I was going to in my delusions of grandeur that I'd already be a famous American poet by now. Um, you know, like, uh, that's definitely not how anything panned out. But well, once- you know, you could be the most famous American poet and probably still have to, I don't know, like at, at, at a Starbucks or something, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love poetry and I wish, I wish it, it had the reverence. I think we would be all be better people if we read more poetry, but it's it's one of those weird things where it doesn't seem to have a slot in our modern life. No, know? I remember talking to uh, this American poet, Nick Flynn, and he said, poetry is the only thing that devalues the piece of paper you printed. <laughs> but I think like you, once I started paying attention to energy, you almost just like get hooked. Like we you do, just want to know do. more and more and go deeper and deeper because it's explanatory power is so revelatory because it's the edifice of our modern lives. Absolutely. And um, it, 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 it's also uh, one of those unfortunate things where I really got hooked into power in Taiwan because it's dysfunctional. It's where the story is. And as mm-hmm. a journalist, you really gravitate towards that. And especially with problems and you feel like people aren't really talking about it mm-hmm. or not enough, then that's when you really start to pay attention. And I'm not to say that it's all negative, but the energy policy is, is so ambitious and the uh, movement away from nuclear energy is, is, is going to be so hard to make up for. Mm-hmm. that this is a story I'll be watching for the next few years. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We'll probably touch on some of that as we go along. I wanted to talk to you about this wonderful article you wrote for oh, yes. City Citywide Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, China faces a cruel and dirty energy winter. I love the title. I was wondering if you could give us the broad strokes just to start of what is going on in China because it seems pretty freaky 
from where I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. Yeah, you don't explain, you don't expect it of a planned economy, right? <laughs> I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's around the middle of uh, September when power just started going out uh, unannounced, or maybe you might get a notice the night before, you know, for industrial users. And in the very, very beginning, they were trying to spin it as well. We're, we are just that serious about our ESG goals. We're just so that serious about decarbonization that we are um, just cracking down on these dirty, dirty industries. But that story kind of went out of the window the moment um, the consumer electricity supply is touched because you just don't do that. You have mm. people eating their dinners uh, by the light by candlelight, <laughs> not in a romantic way. Okay? Right, right. You and, said there was a run on candles. Actually, there were. You know, people were just stocking up on candles uh, until they, you know, couldn't buy them online anymore. You had ridiculous things happening. Uh, you had so you know you had you had people being helped off the platform because you know their their train couldn't pull in the platform properly before the electricity stopped. Wow. You had traffic lights stopping. In the most ridiculous video I saw, and it's like truly a testament to the adaptability of the Chinese people, was this lady who was in the middle of getting a perm when the power went out. <laughs> and they pushed her out to the local garage. And because the local garage had a generator, she finished her perm there in the garage. Wow. Yeah. So when you had, when you had people being affected in that way and, and winter coming up and winter seeing in China, in, in the north of China, being very cruel, very brutal. Yeah, you, you, had, you had some big, big problems. It signals some big, big problems. And basically what happened was a 180-degree change in policy. Mm-hmm. And they went from uh, stamping out all the marginal coal producers and trying to crush corruption and trying to do ESG. I think they were actually kind of sincere about it, mm-hmm. trying to keep the skies blue for Beijing 2022. All that went out of the window and it's just, it's, it, be, it became like, turn on every last suspect Mongolian coal mine that has been working for however many years. Let's turn it all back on. We just need the black stuff because, yeah, when people get cold, they get they get riot rioty in Taiwan. Yeah. You know, I mean, sorry, in China. I mean, I think we have this very here in the West. We have this view of the the, the grand public in China as being very placid and un- completely under the whip of the CCP. Right. But let me tell you, the CCP are that strict on them because they are scared of the power of the public mm-hmm. and public opinion. And when the public, um, when, when people rebel in the onesies and twosies, they are crushed brutally, you know, whatever. But when the people rise up at some mass where there's an instigating incident where they all get mad at once, mm-hmm. that's the CCP's worst nightmare. Yeah. And we had a, bunch of cold people in the middle of the winter with nothing left to lose yeah 
And they, 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 they know this. It's interesting because you can actually also go back to the energy shortages of the past. And this has happened in a more localized way. And it's like public has its own intelligence and they know how to stand up together. And they have these like giant banners that they all hold a little piece of. So nobody's really in charge. And it's just like, Give us our electricity or give warm our homes, please. And you know, there'll be kind of polite messages like, yeah. please, dear central government, make sure that we're warm this winter, or something like that. And everybody is carrying a piece of that banner. It's like, who's the ringleader? Who's the instigator? Who do you punish? You can't yeah. punish them all. Right. That's fascinating. So, I mean, that seems like very perilous territory to have entered into. I'm interested in what you said about sort of the different facets of this. So we had a push for renewables, which like the rest of the world didn't deliver. Who knows the the extent of their sincerity about ESG, they did commit to certain things. And part of that you said was cracking down on corruption involved with marginal coal producers. So what's that about? Well, let's say the coal mines in China, you know, coal has a way of falling off the back of the truck. And a lot of people (laughs) got really, really wealthy off that. And, you know, let's, you know, um, I I don't want to think of him as an evil guy or a good guy in this equation. Just a political actor. Yeah. He's a political actor and he's like, my hand cannot stretch there. These guys have their own little fiefdoms and they're enriching themselves in a way that makes me look bad. I'm going to crack the whip on them. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is sometimes when you stamp out corruption, you also stamp out productivity. Mm-hmm. This is one of the hard lessons I've really had to deal with in, you know, because I think when you're away from, uh, when you're just, doing your job and your job doesn't involve any corruption and you get ahead if you do well, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't. It's very easy to be super sanctimonious about corruption and mm-hmm. how it's, you know, you should have zero tolerance for it. And But in certain systems that are not functional in other ways, corruption is how things get done because it, it's, it's a backdoor way of incentivizing people to make sure that things are working right. So and it's relationships, are, it's guarantees, exactly, it's its own exactly. trust network, and it has accountability exactly. all its own. Yeah. It, it, it's weird. It's like a, it's a dark, it's a dark, dark world. But at the same time, if you know you're skimming off this plant mm-hmm. and I don't know, 15% is going in your pocket, you're going to be there and you're incentivized to make sure that the coal's coming out, that the mm-hmm. machineries are working and everything's like, you know, functioning because you you have your pipeline right you have your incentive it might not be the incentive we would wish market liberals mm-hmm. but it's also the in- what we should expect as market liberals in the mm-hmm. absence of an incentive things don't work and that's mm-hmm. um, kind of exactly what we think we saw and so they they're like okay we're, we're going to do this corruption crackdown mm-hmm. and as a result all these coal mines close and and some Canny investors notice that they pick that up really, like really mm-hmm. early on. Like China's gonna have a coal problem. Guys, let's let's, you know, you know, some of them made a killing, honestly. It's yeah. a damn obscene. But oh, 
you know, good for them. You know, they saw them <laughs> and they took it. Yeah, they saw um, the play. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I actually think that we should go one step further mm-hmm. uh, because as I also wrote in my article, sure, you have all these proximate causes to the perfect storm. Isn't it interesting how blackouts are always described as the perfect storm? Usually not just one factors. And so it is in this case. Yeah, it's a complex system. So a lot of things have to go wrong to get rid of redundancies. And usually, usually it's one of those things where nobody's stupid enough to to risk a blackout. So they build in a little bit of margin. Yeah. (laughs) And and the, the thing is, if you have all these different factors you have to rely on, and each one of them have, have built in an acceptable margin. Mm-hmm. Somehow, just because you have too many factors going on, the chances, it's like it's like throwing more and more dice, you know, but somehow, mm-hmm. you know, it's all going to come up snake eyes one of those times. And this, this is what happened. Like, okay, you have Mongolian crackdown, you have ESG, uh, but I think if you really, 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 really want to dig, 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 down, 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 what is the reason it's because China's coal power plants were only half liberalized, meaning they were subject to uh, floating price of coal. So when coal is expensive, they just have to eat at that price. Mm-hmm. But the price of their electricity output was capped by, by, by China because they, you know, it's, it's, this is a big, big problem, by the way, China is going to have to overcome in the coming years because it doesn't work to have a half liberalized system. It doesn't work if you have a power plant where you mandate mm-hmm. what they can earn on the output, but you let them twist in the wind on absorbing the cost of their input. So when coal yeah. went up, no one's gonna, no one's gonna stand for that. 300%. Hey, you can't even make them keep producing. People find a way not to produce that power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you, those dramatic footage I saw of all these enormous storehouses of coal, absolutely empty. It's eerie. And they did that because it, for every uh, kilowatt hour of electricity they produced, they lost. So they simply didn't produce. It was, again, kind of like that, you know, if you're, if you're the one dissenter who spoke up and said, Chairman C, I think your policy sucks and <laughs> us coal producers are not going to be able to survive, then he would have been squashed like a bug. Mm-hmm. But if all these power producers all at once, huh? maybe not even coordinated, but they just all stopped using power, that put enormous pressure on the Chinese government and something got done really, really, really quickly. Uh, I, I believe it was within two weeks, they already allowed a certain amount of float for the price of the electricity. Soon it was more and more. And I don't think it's going to go back. I think the price of electricity, the, the, the end of the era of price stability for power in China is kind of kind of over they it's gonna be really hard to get it to go back again right they've sort of crossed the rubicon on that one it can't Mm -hmm. be the same after what's happening so i'm interested in how the chinese energy system is set up right and like what we mean when we say liberalized because i've seen a lot of different definitions of that especially when we're talking energy and 
power, right? Um, so in America, often when we say we're going to liberalize it, what we mean is we're going to set up like the regional transmission organization, wholesale auction house style energy grid. Is that what you mean here? Or do you mean something else? Uh, it's, it's really a little bit. No, not the American style. The Chinese power producers, the uh, um, power plants, mm -hmm. they're still like, no, I don't know, state-owned state organizations or something like that. Vertically you're, integrated. You, you, yeah. you know, you, you, don't, you, you don't have, I don't think you've gotten to the, the point of decadence, like in the UK, <laughs> where you had like octopus, glow, right, right. you know, sparkle, I don't know. Yeah, all, <laughs> all the, the different... <laughs> Yeah, all the all the all the sort of um, power companies that are mm -hmm. that are really just like the thinnest layer over yeah. that the are all market. dropping like flies right now. Exactly, it's beautiful to see. I, they already <laughs> they already lost sixteen uh, yeah. of those companies, and just like my goodness, how big is the UK? It needs sixteen utilities. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually like, I, I love markets. I mm -hmm. do describe myself as a neoliberal, which can be quite controversial sometimes, but I like markets that work and are functional. And I believe that power is such a part of our infrastructure for mm -hmm. the economy that there's a strong case for the state providing a stable basis right. for that. So like a public that, utility model, right? Exactly. That is, that's, that's why happening in Taiwan and you notice that we have our problems but we, we kind of we're, we're kind of missing this round of the, the, the global power crunch because mm. uh, we have one state utility and as the monopoly operator of power in Taiwan they simply did the prudent thing the safe mm. thing of negotiating a lot of 20 to 25 year long leases for coal and LNG. Mm. And actually, those loan leases, you know, they benefit both, in my in my opinion, supplier, supply. Instead of things veering all over the place in the spot market, you are locked in at a certain price. And mm. the producers can plan their productions accordingly. And people talk about Russia being so evil and not providing the West with in the Europe with enough gas to last through the winter. Um, and while I admit there's some level of gamesmanship involved and Putin is having a great time drinking Europe's chain, if you just look at it from a business perspective, how is it reasonable at all mm -hmm. for you to be like the cricket in the end of the cricket in the summertime when gas prices are cheap and just saying, I just want to buy cheap gas. I don't want a commitment. I just want to buy cheap gas as cheap as gas will go. And then when gas spikes because demand has gone up and mm -hmm. you haven't prepared the producers for the demand, all of a sudden demanding that they turn on all these bigots and indeed, you know, just, just give you magic gas that isn't there. It, it's, it's not reasonable. Well, and also um, for them to yeah. serve you before they fill up their own stores, which is, yeah, I know that's no. a painful <laughs> lesson in energy sovereignty right there. I, I, I think so. I think so. Babushka's gotta, gotta, gotta make sure the babushka's a worm for winter <laughs> before, <laughs> yeah. before they worry about you. And, you know, Putin is smug about it, and I believe he's strategic about it in a way that you can argue is 
you know, unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But the way I say it is, you know, I remember, you know, the the Green Party lady from Germany, um, Annalisa Baum or whatever her name is, she was accusing uh, Putin of playing poker with uh, gas. And I was like, lady, you guys gave up your Trump and when it comes to energy. And now you are uh, accusing the other side of playing poker. It doesn't work like that. It's, yep. um, you know, it, it is what it is. And you don't recognize that you're the suburb. If you don't see any suckers around, you're it. And I, I believe that Europe is being suckered right now. Uh, yeah. Or when it comes to LNG. Yeah, I used to have this uh, boss that would just say, sucks to suck. Um, <laughs> yeah but so to me what's fascinating about what's happening in china is that it state run doesn't necessarily mean public utility it means something else is going on they're basically turning the ship on a dime to accommodate for this there was also you wrote about in the article some problems with uh their relationship with australia which i imagine was yeah, a fallout yeah. from the AUKUS deal if i remember correctly no nope, no nope, nope. Actually, okay. it is not. The Australian-Chinese beef actually extended well I mean, before. I mean, I know it goes way before that. I thought way that before. might have been... And also, also the, the, coal, the coal problem was, was way before. And if anything, I think it might have precipitated the August deal. Okay. Uh, and most of Australia's coal going to China is actually cooking coal, not thermal coal. Okay. Um, but you've you got to understand, in a crisis like this, even a little... Every little matters, and that little bit of Australian was also a big factor. But the reasons why they cut off Australian coal was truly monumentally stupid. I believe that it has something <laughs> to do with like Australians demanding an investigation into COVID, and the Chinese got insulted, and they just started banning random Australian stuff, like Australian wine. No, no yeah, retaliatory tariffs and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And they're not. They're not afraid. To them, that's the game they're playing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really a lot of the times you project, like, you know, malintent or evil mm-hmm. onto other people, other states, other actors, other big corporations, whatever. But really, it's just a bunch of actors playing two games, and mm. that's the one that China's playing. And for them, because they actually cut off themselves from a really, really key supply, right, from Australia. They have a lot of coal in China. And yeah, so they, they, they really, it really shows the planning on the economy when you also have an economy that is that complicated and that liberalized. It's like that's the strength of the Chinese economy, right? Turns on a dime, it's got all these electronic producers in the supply chain and mm-hmm. when that meets the, the rigidity of state planning and the firm cudgel of power from up on high there's going to be a lot of mess yes especially when it's high stakes stuff like managing the grid and keeping the energy flowing because china's grid is i think just one big piece and it serves like 1.1 billion people which is wow. astounding. Their grid yeah. operators are like living gods because that is <laughs> inc- 
incredible responsibility um, on them. And what I've been seeing is that factories in China have cut production from five to six days a week to one to two. Right. Depends regionally, but you yeah, haven't heard sure. wrong for some for some regions, and it has recovered. Actually, China actually also brutally punished the coal speculators. They, they turned on production so much. I think uh, Chinese thermal coal prices basically crashed. So they are also able to, you know, really. That's it's a double-sided sword, right? So it, what got them into trouble is also uh, able to let them ramp up coal production extraordinarily mm-hmm. effectively, which is, of course, one of those things where, okay, they solve one problem, but bye-bye ESG polls, bye-bye yeah. skies, Beijing 2022, and not great news for um, for all of us, really, that are concerned about pollution, global warming. You know, here in China, here in Taiwan, we you know import, <laughs> like it or not, some of the pollution um, because just just don't ride over the pollution. Yeah. Like the CO2 doesn't know national boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to basically turn to Taiwan or just the region generally at, at large. How So you said that Taiwan, because of its own prudence, is ducking the global energy crisis right now, more or less, compared to places like China. What is going on with Taiwan's energy future? Okay, let's talk about, let's break it down to the short term and the long term. The, in the current energy crunch, the Taiwanese grand public are amazingly insulated from it. They barely know this energy problem going on worldwide because we our, our utilities are state-run. And while they, they, they still have like some of the, you know, you, you can buy their stock. And mm-hmm. it's, they're basically state-run entities and they can be voluntold to do a lot of things, including, I believe, the Chinese petroleum company is projected to take on a huge loss in LNG. Mm-hmm. Um, they already have, luckily, most of their purchases in these, you know, long contracts, like 20, 25 years. And uh, so they're stabilized that way. But even just a little bit, they're buying on the midterm and maybe the 10% they're buying on the spot market, it's hitting them pretty hard. Mm-hmm. That's not getting passed on to the consumers in any meaningful way, not during COVID, no way. So that's one way in which I like properly managed utilities. But unfortunately, the long-term energy policy of Taiwan I believe is going in a disastrous direction because okay. it's being dictated by politicians, not mm-hmm. professionals, um, not professionals in the, in the in the power industry anyhow. So President Tsai, Tsai Ing-wen, who I adore in so many ways, I think she's a very smart lady and she's done a lot of good for Taiwan on the world diplomatic stage. Mm. COVID has been managed spectacularly. Some of it is up to the Taiwanese people. Some of it is up to the our institutions but you know i also believe that leadership at the top really helped but when she came into power she was ideologically i believe her hands were tied on this i don't Mm. know what her personal beliefs are at all she was ideologically bound to her campaign promise to reduce nuclear energy to zero and yeah and and it was one of those unfortunate things and she chose 2025 because she's smart and she knows that's when for nuclear two and nuclear three, basically the, the first three nuclear plants in Taiwan, they're just gonna, you know, approach their 40 year old 
end of license. And, right. you know, well, strategically, what a big move, right? You don't have to lift the finger. You just have to not renew their license. Mm-hmm. Their license could have been renewed. It's standard for of their vintage in the U.S. to have their age extended into yes. 16 years, into 80 years, okay? Yeah. But because she's in power, it's always easier to not do something than to affirmatively do it. So she didn't do anything to affirmatively shut the plants down. She's just letting the clock run out on their time. And the fourth nuclear plant was actually mothballed on, under previous administration. And so she, uh, in my opinion, says a lot of things that are very irresponsible and wrong to keep mm. that plant closed. And that is because for her party, and although I don't know her personal beliefs, what she says sure she's just completely anti-nuclear and they've just said things that are just just plain wrong like mm-hmm. you know we can't those plant, plants were left half on the fourth nuclear plant was left half undone nope it was it's almost completely done and it was mothballed with immaculate care with 100 mm. percent intention of bringing it back to use she'll say Oh, we can't get parts for it because it is a old, decrepit technology. As if it's not built by G. Hitachi, who the last I heard <laughs> is still alive and kicking. Yeah, um, I, think, I think they're still they're still they're still around. Yeah, and and so it, it becomes this very emotional thing because yes, the nuclear plants were built by under the old authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people associate them with that. And they associate them with a lot of the way things were done back then, which mm-hmm. was real. And it becomes really emotive, right? Like, yeah. say, a bunch of low-level nuclear waste got dumped in by you. And it became a huge wound for the indigenous people there. Now, actually, interestingly enough, if you go to Lanyu and you measure the radioactivity... <laughs> It's actually lower than in Taipei, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, it's the low-level waste, right? So if it was the high-level waste, it might be a different... It did. It it, it was low-level waste. It was like the boobies and, you know, whatever. And But that the damage was done because Mm -hmm. with nuclear, as so often in nuclear, it's not about damage done by the radiation. It's damage done through misunderstanding, fear, and in this case, also disrespect towards yes. people's rights. You know, oh, we don't want to deal with this political problem at home that's stashed in Orchid Island. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't want to put myself in a place of defending something that I feel like, no matter its complete impacts, was not done in a respectful way towards them. Oh, absolutely. Students. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally yeah, agree but, with that. You know, that shows the problem, though. You can say all these things about uh, Taiwanese power. We really, really do. We already use an enormous amount of it because we're an uh, export-oriented economy. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's one thing to tell people to turn the air conditioner down in the summer or, or you know, you know mm-hmm. not leave their cell phones charging in the no wall was batteries full, but uh, when more than sixty percent of your electricity use is industrial, then it really becomes difficult to skip mm-hmm. on electricity usage without hurting your economic growth. 
Absolutely. And well, especially because you guys churn out so much of the world's supply of chips through TSMC. Absolutely. And and those chips, they are not just they're hungry, they're hungry, hungry babies. And they take a, <laughs> well, the reason why I call them hungry babies, first of all, they do eat up so much Taiwan's electricity supply. Mm. By some measures, 10%. I don't know if that's true, but certainly five. Just TSMC alone, one chip maker. And there wow. are more chip makers in Taiwan. And they take a lot of water resources. And they are so finicky because you understand they're getting down to like a two nanometer node process. It is so small and the stability of supply has to be such that any kind of like any kind of fluctuation, yeah. the, the, the merest shutter in voltage is going to ruin the entire batch of chips. Um, and uh, I believe they must be invested in their own infrastructure to make sure that uh, they can stabilize it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But at let's say like a five to ten percent user, they're also going to have to depend on the greater stability of the grid. Yes. and assurance of supply. And that is what Taiwan doesn't have going into the future because uh, when I started reporting on, on on energy last year, nuclear was still 12%. It's already down. Um, I forgot exactly where it was at its peak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, the, the fourth nuclear plant itself was supposed to provide for 10% of Taiwan's electricity. Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a big lad. To take out of your supply. Yeah. Actually, 10% is about as big as you can responsible, responsibly make a piece of kit to supply yeah. your uh, your electricity. So to pull that out of the supply, you have video footage going back, you know, 10 years, you know, back when you know they were initially talking about mothballing the things. Yeah, and we're gonna see power shortages in the 2020s. And yeah. Uh, indeed, that's exactly what happened. Um, wow. Well, Tsai, when Tsai took office in 2016, Rewind, uh, people did ask her, well, okay, nuclear's going to zero, where's the juice going to come from? And I think you can always tell politicians didn't really think things through completely on a granular mm-hmm. level if the numbers they give are very big and very round. Yes. And she, she was like, 50% natural gas, 30% coal, 20% renewables. There, we just made up the whole pie. We made the pie whole again. <laughs> and, and there's just so much to unpack in that. First of all, you cannot take away nuclear and fill it with renewables without, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm without some something in the middle, right? Like there's got, because one is a base load and the other is a variable source. Yeah. And when I'm talking about variable, I mean, there's short-term variable, solar, of course, sun doesn't shine at night, but that is actually, okay, you build huge battery banks. And theoretically, you can imagine a scenario where you, sh- where you cover yourself throughout the night. Mm-hmm. We have interseasonal variability when it comes to wind. So the wind blows basically in the winter. And and so to rely on solar and wind, it, um, it, it creates problems, right? And I'm not like, you know, 
anti-renewables or anything, but these are grid problems we have to solve. Okay, so gas, right? Gas picker plants are supposed to solve a lot of the problems and gas is going up to 50%. And displacing gas with coal is, you know, again, on paper seems like better than nothing since coal does, you know, for the same kilowatt hour generated uh, emit twice as much greenhouse gases. Okay, let's do that. Except Taiwan doesn't have enough receiving structure for LNG. We have two and they're both running at uh, you know, more than 100% of their you know, supposed capacity. They've been overclocking them and they're gonna overclock them more. And even with all that overclocking that's going on, they are, in the summer, we have a seven day supply maybe mm-hmm. of uh, liquid natural gas. So we're not talking about like, let's not even talk about a blockade scenario like a a few bad typhoons or I don't know, a few, whatever eventualities, you know, could put Taiwan in a state of energy hunger. Coal, we have a longer term supply, maybe two, three months. But, you know, when you made your energy mix so that it's 50% gas, you literally cannot just replace that by turning on more coal plants. There aren't that many. Yeah. And um, so that is very problematic. And also that 20% of, of, of renewable energy construction is even behind target. And there are now people raising questions. How are we going to get to that amount of installed capacity by 2025? So, and pe- the, our friends, the environmentalists, are actually uh, blocking the construction of the third of the natural gas terminal mm. and liquefied natural gas, excuse me. And yeah, it's just going to be really, really tight. So, especially 2023, that's going to be a huge pinch point. The reserve capacity in the system is going to go. We try to keep it really mandated. We're supposed to have 15% reserve capacity. Mm-hmm. It's going to go down to 12 and change. And that's the most optimistic possible scenario. Oof. That's cutting yeah. it down to the wire. But like one of the things I was paying attention to is what happened in Texas in February, right? Right. So they have approaching about the amount of renewables that Taiwan wants. Yeah. So it's usually 20%. about that around that 20% range, depending there may be, might be some edge cases. That's usually where the grid starts to run into some trouble. And Samsung has a silicone wafer fab in Texas. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Remember that. And that it lost like hundreds of millions. Yeah. <laughs> and they lost like hundreds of millions of dollars, I think. And it set their production back somewhere between 30 and 60 days. Because it's not like you could just be like, oh, anyway, back to making the wafer. You know, when you've had uh, blackouts like that. So I think that what's becoming clear to me, and it sounds like for you too, is that there are real stakes here when we're making decisions about that, right? And about, you can't just say that certain generators are of energy can do every single thing the way you want them to when you want them to Mm -hmm. if they aren't built to do that 
You know, that doesn't mean that they have no uses, but they does mean that you're going to have limited optionality when it comes yeah. to your plans. Yeah. Taiwan is already doing demand response on a voluntary basis for its industry. Mm-hmm. You know, that just means factories running off peak to smooth out the electricity supply. And that is hitting, I believe, we're hitting the top of how much we can demand response we can do without actually affecting the economy too much. Meanwhile, new, new manufacturers are reshoring all the time because wow. there's a world, worldwide trend to decouple from China after you know all the shenanigans they pull, people, and of course, their own electricity crisis. Paradoxically. Right. I've I've actually I've actually been calling that their their energy crunch combined with the existing supply chain issues and the manufacturing base that China has. I've been calling it the black cascade because they're gonna you start know, that's to, a, yeah, yeah. It's gonna start feeding into itself, you know. That that is that is brilliant because yeah, you're right. And also also very apropos when you turn it on the Taiwanese side and people talk about the great chip shortage as if TSMC haven't been banking out a ton of chips. It's actually yeah. a huge, like unexpected boost in demand. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the world's main economic bodies are all doing tons of, tons of, you know, let's broadly call it easing and, mm-hmm. you know, helicopter money, stimulus, whatever you want to call it, infrastructure projects. And, and so all of a sudden, it's like, like, how much stimulus can the system absorb, right? Because you've just gone from everybody tightening their belts like crazy mm-hmm. to all of a sudden demanding this huge spike in demand. And the supply chains just, just stretch and broke. Because remember, before COVID, what was in fashion, seems like a long time ago, this is nimble, just in time, manufacturing. It's like, we got this order and then, you know, it's only as soon as we got the order, then our factories in Guangdong started to move. Then it got to JC Penney's, you know, yeah, six yeah. weeks later. You go through just like the whole time. Kanban process, you know, and then exactly. suddenly it's right there to, in front of you. You try yeah. to shave, 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 shave off every last bit of redundancy. You know, and it's like somebody trying to get themselves into supermodel shape, and then all of a sudden, we have a famine. (laughs) So it's it's like all that fat that was in the system was actually what's protecting it from fragility and finding out that listen big time. And so, yeah, people are, I don't think manufacturing is going to completely be decoupled from China. Because they just have a lot of advantages, including right, yep. we're talking about you know renewable energy and stuff, all the manufacturing and resources extraction that goes on there. That's hard to replace elsewhere. So what happens is that becomes a potential boon for Taiwan, because if you manufacture in Taiwan, you can still benefit from proximity to the Chinese supply chain in terms of sourcing your components and you speak the same language, but then it's going to be made in a non-Chinese country. And that makes it much, much more attractive to American buyers. Real advantage. And yet we could be turning that advantage into a real problem if we don't have the electricity we need to um, 
support those suppliers. And, you know, the government is still adamant that there is no electricity crunch, that they're going to just find all those kilowatt hours and the couch yeah. cushions. I'm not yeah. sure. They're going to go to the good old kilowatt mine and dig them right out. <laughs> so um, it's, it, it's kind of perplexing and hard to report upon. And it's re- also really hard, I think, on, you know, I've been, I've had a lot of good things to say about the state-run utilities. And I think they are professionals. And I think there are the whipping boys of the politicians right now. Mm. And mm. Um, basically, the high power is the whipping boy of Bureau of Energy. The Bureau of Energy is the whipping boy of the Ministry of Economic Affairs. And it doesn't stop there. It keeps on going up. And let me just say, um, I won't talk about it too much, but it goes up beyond the president. If you think mm. that she is in complete control of her party, you're wrong. The political forces in Taiwan, you know, it just, it's very entrenched. So, I really don't know. It's, it's one of those things where I can't imagine Chinese-style blackouts in Taiwan because I think it's too well-managed. At the same time, the same thing that happened in, in China, which is she's like, I'm going to tell you to do this. You, uh, no, no liberalization of profits, only liberalization of costs. And you have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And there was a limit to that. He could he could mandate it until he couldn't. And I think similar process is going to happen. You can push Thai power so much to, you know, you got to remember, you know, when the power cuts happened back in May, it was the Thai power executives, you know, took demerits, you know, like a bad schoolboy or something. Mm. Did they set the energy policy? They didn't set the energy policy. But there, what blackouts happen when when things don't go right, then it's their responsibility. How is that fair? It's not fair. And they can't say anything about it unless you're retired and they get very, very loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, many such cases of that. Um, many such cases. Yeah, many such cases. <laughs> Well, I guess we live in interesting times and we'll have to see how this unfolds. I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day to explain all of this. I learned so much. It, this was really, oh, really no helpful. I'm and I, I can't fan. wait for the episode to come out. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. And thanks for doing what you do. You know, you're, I love your whole branding. I love your whole attitude. I love your ethos and you being strategic and putting it all together. And I think we need to be based on this. I think we need to be based when it comes to nuclear. <laughs> one thing I, I do want to mention before uh, we wrap up Please. is that there is a referendum to restart the fourth nuclear plant. So that bad oh, boy- amazing. Mothball, but not gone forever. And remember what I said about high power executives, you know, becoming very vociferous once they've retired. The former, the former director of the Mothball fourth nuclear plant. Remember, a whole generation of Taiwanese nuclear engineers. Their their life is spent. Some of them started their careers at the building the fourth nuclear plant, then maintaining it, then mothballing it, then mm. maintaining the pod. That's their whole career. He was very vociferous about the fourth nuclear plant being able to be restarted, that there are parts that it was probably mothballed, 
and can be brought back. We gave timelines. And I think together with what we observed in China and also our own problems in, in May, I think it's, it's moving the needle. Mm-hmm. And the latest polls are showing just narrowly, narrowly, that the referendum on December 18th to, to restart the fourth nuclear plant might actually pass. So any, any listeners out there, if you know anybody in Taiwan, even if you don't know anybody in Taiwan, <laughs> find some Taiwanese, go online, find some Taiwanese person and just, just tell them that nuclear power is safe, Taiwan needs it, and you support them. Tell them Taiwan is a country. Taiwanese people love that. <laughs> Say, hey, Taiwan is a country. Nuclear power is good. Go the referendum. <laughs> okay, barbarians, you have your marching orders. You know what to do. So, again, thank you, Angelica, and everyone else. Thank you, Emma. Stay safe, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We'll see you next time.